Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 38, the book of Matthew, chapters 10 and 11. Of the several passages in, in Matthew chapter 10 that we studied last week, verses 26 through 31 dealt with fear, death, and, and the problem of evil. Now, in context, it primarily had to do with Yeshua's twelve disciples, what they might face as they journeyed through the Holy Land, taking the good news that the Kingdom of Heaven had arrived, and they were taking this to the Jewish population. Now, in the Peshat sense, the plain, literal sense, this concern was directly for the twelve. And it was a warning by Christ that they would likely encounter angry opposition and some might not survive their mission. Now, I have no doubt that this is how they all would have taken it. Now, in the Remez sense, the deeper underlying sense, this was a message for all future disciples, wherever they may be about what we could expect to face in the task of the Great Commission that we've all signed up for when we first gave our hearts to our Savior, whether we realized it or not. Now, as we'll read a little later, Christ relates to all who choose to follow Him that we should expect to have tribulation, just as He suffered. We should expect to be persecuted and shunned, just as he was. You know, I remember decades ago that a pastor I was listening to said, as believers, if we are not pariahs to the world, we're just not trying hard enough. That's always stuck with me. If we listen carefully to what Yeshua tells us it is that if we are friends of this world more than we are to Him, and if we belong to this world more than we belong to Him, then we cannot also be His. Matthew 7, 21-23, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the Kingdom of Heaven. Only those who do what My Father in Heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, this does not mean that in the name of Christ, we are to try to find ways to offend others. (laughs) or to make unnecessary trouble for ourselves. This doesn't mean that we aren't to show respect to others who disagree with our stance on Christ. This also doesn't mean that we are to try for poverty as a lifestyle, or that we must go off into some commune in the wilderness that we might physically separate ourselves from a corrupted society. 
Quite the opposite, actually. We cannot be a light to the world <clears throat> if we disconnect and hide from it. But more importantly, we cannot tell others of God's love and Yeshua's sacrifice for them if we aren't among the world. Interacting with the world, dealing with the natural consequences that come from it. <clears throat> A secular film entitled Into the Wild tells the true story of a young man, Chris McCandless, who immediately after graduating from Emory University left his family, his friends, all societal connections in order to gain what he saw as complete freedom. <clears throat> the only way he thought was the means to happiness. He disavowed money, possessions, and most importantly, relationships with people other than with other than just fleeting ones. During one conversation he had with an elderly man who had befriended him, Chris explained that the reason this man was lonely was because he wrongly felt that relationships with people was, was what mattered most in life. Rather, says the young man, it's experiencing the physical world and all of its bounty and diversity and beauty that brings contentment and happiness. Well. Chris finally achieved his goal of living in solitude, free from all societal and, and human attachments in the breathtaking wilderness of Alaska. He made home out of a rusted out hull of a bus that lay mysteriously and so oddly out of place, miles beyond civilization, deep in the Alaskan bush. He died only a few months later alone and in that bus. After having no luck foraging for food and accidentally eating some poisonous berries to satisfy his gnawing hunger. In the diary that he kept, the diary in his body accidentally stumbled upon by moose hunters, his final pinned words were that it turns out he was wrong. In his last hours of life, at only 24 years of age, Chris McCandless wrote just this short sentence of personal discovery and it said simply, happiness only has meaning when it's shared with others. This was perhaps his way of saying that he at last understood that true happiness only blossoms when we love our neighbors as ourselves. For followers of Christ, hopefully the epiphany that the joy of our salvation only has meaning when it is shared with others comes early in our faith walk. Let us vow to do that at whatever the cost and to not have to stand before our God after our inevitable death and explain 
probably not very well, <clears throat> that we thought that living only within and for ourselves, safely in these rusting out buses that we call our bodies, was where happiness resided. Because that means we never took Jesus' instructions to us seriously. Now, as for the issue of evil and this perplexing question of how a loving and sovereign God could allow the world of His creation to become so sickly, so full of wrong, Yeshua simply reminds His disciples through an illustration that every human life matters to God and that the Father values His, his human creations above His animal creations, even though He places great value on them as well. In the end, the answer to this question of the ages is that God is a mystery and His ways are above our ways. Jesus also instructs that our bodies are temporary and they can be destroyed in any number of ways. But our soul, that's separate, it's eternal, that only God the Father can destroy our soul. Therefore, we should not worry about our lives. So, in response to this teaching, believers are to take on the attitude of Job, who in his darkest hour comes to understand that whatever happens on earth, good or evil, happy or sad, God not only knows about it, it has to be within His will for it even to happen. This is what true, honest, real, operable faith in God comes down to. We observe, we trust, and we do not demand answers that satisfy our preconceived perceptions. Let's move on to the next section of Matthew chapter 10. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. It's going to be on page, um, what is it? 1235, 1235. We're going to start at verse 32 and go on to the end. <clears throat> 1235. Whoever acknowledges me in the presence of others, I will also acknowledge in the presence of my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Don't suppose that I have come to bring, bring peace to the land. It's not peace I've come to bring, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, so that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than he loves me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than he loves me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his execution stake and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his own life will lose it, but the person who loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you is receiving me. Whoever receives me is receiving the one who sent me. 
Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive the war reward a prophet gets. Anyone who receives a sodic because he is a sodic will receive the reward a sodic gets. Indeed, if someone just gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, yes, I tell you, he will certainly not lose his reward. <clears throat> I think if I was one of the original 12 disciples, I'd be both perplexed and startled at what Yeshua just said to me. He says there are eternal consequences for acknowledging Him or not. You know, I suppose I'd have to ask myself why this miracle-working holy man, this Sadek, why my relationship with him as one of his disciples would determine some hazy vision of my eternal future. And yet, 2,000 years in hindsight, we, his followers, understand that Yeshua was saying that God the Father isn't only His Father in the sense we can all call God Father, but rather there is an actual, tangible, one-on-one, -on -one familial connection between Jesus and God. Jesus is not only God's Son in the sense that all Israelite kings of the past have been imputed as His sons. Rather, it is that Yeshua and God are literally related in the same way that any son and his biological father are, and yet in ways that no human son and father can be. Yeshua also says that merely intellectually and secretly accepting Him is not sufficient. This acceptance must be visible and it must be public. For those who accept Him, then Yeshua says that when He stands in the Father's presence, He'll acknowledge Him. This statement of standing in heaven before the Father can only allude to Daniel chapter 7 and to Jesus referring to Himself as the Son of Man. Let's briefly look to Daniel yet, yet again. Daniel 7, verses 9-14, through 14, As I watched, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took His seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on His head was like pure wool, His throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from His presence, thousands and thousands Thousands and thousands ministered to Him. Millions and millions stood before Him. Then the court was convened and the books were opened. And I kept watching. Then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking, I watched as the animal was killed. Its body was destroyed and it was given over to be burned up completely. Now as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a time and a season. And I kept watching the night visions. When I saw coming with the clouds of heaven, someone like a Son of Man, and He approached the Ancient One, 
and he was led into his presence, and to him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom, so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Undeniably, the twelve disciples were not entirely confident of what Yeshua meant. But for us, there is no reason to wonder if only we'll consult the Bible. Yeshua is saying He is Daniel's Son of Man who stands in heaven before the Ancient One, the Father, and is given a kingdom to rule forever. Jesus says that when He, the Son of Man, stands before the Father, He will claim those who claim Him. He follows this up by essentially saying the same thing, only in the negative. The complete Jewish Bible has Jesus asserting that for those who disown Him, He will disown them before the Father. I can't go with that translation. The Greek word is amiomai, amiomai. It means to deny. It means to reject. It means to reply no to something that's offered. The word disown has this sense of first having owned or having accepted something and later on disavowing it. But that is not what amiomai means. Thus, it is that when the twelve disciples present the person and the purpose of Yeshua to the Jewish people, there will be those who say no to it. And to those who say no to Yeshua, the Son of Man, He will say no to that person in front of the Father. So what are we to take from this? Let's take this in two stages. Stage 1 applies to the time of Christ. What would those twelve disciples think Jesus means by declaring that they and those Jews they encounter must accept Him? See, thus far in His ministry, Yeshua hasn't even proclaimed that He's the Messiah. Or that he's divine, or that he's the deliverer, even though the implications of his words are heavy. So it can only be that to them he is saying that as their unquestioned master, they can have no other. He is demanding not only total allegiance to himself, but even a public confession of that allegiance. He says, that the allegiance to Him represents an allegiance to the Father. That's a big deal. By now the Twelve must surely believe that Yeshua is much more than a Zadok in some undefined way, or there's no way they could accept such astounding claims and stipulations. And they must also believe that Indeed, he has this unique relationship with God, unlike 
any who came before him, can they also accept all that Christ has implied and hinted at without him further clarifying or saying those things more plainly? Yes, this is indeed what Jesus expects of the twelve, but also of all those Jews who will hear the message of good news from the twelve. Stage two, however, is that Yeshua was painting a much larger picture than the disciples can possibly comprehend at this time. This picture is for those who are living in the future latter days, the second latter days, not the latter days that the disciples are living in. It is the latter days that we may be living in in the 21st century, although that can't be said with certainty, which culminates with the second appearance of the Son of Man. The second latter days. Well, that leads directly to the end times, meaning the apocalypse. So, what Yeshua is explaining about whom he rejects and whom he accepts before the Father in heaven can only be a depiction of the final judgment, which has at its focal point, according to Daniel, the Son of Man, Christ. Some years later, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation will confirm this understanding in Revelation 1, 10-13. I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write down what you see on a scroll and send it to the seven messianic communities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see who was speaking to me. And when I had turned, I saw seven gold menorahs, and among the menorahs was someone like a son of man, wearing a robe down to his feet, and a gold band around his chest. Notice the timing. Oh, this is important. Notice the timing of the appearance of the Son of Man in John's vision. It is during events contiguous with the day of the Lord, which is but one of several biblical terms that means judgment day. So the Son of Man is directly associated with and involved in judgment day. Now notice what John sees a little bit later on in Revelation. In Revelation 14 now, verses 14 through 16, Then I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was someone like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, and he shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap, because the time to reap has come. The earth's harvest is ripe, and the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So in this scene, the Son of Man, as depicted in Daniel, comes in a cloud on Judgment Day, and he has a sickle in his possession. He uses it to harvest the earth and it, of its countless inhabitants. Do you remember what Jesus said only one chapter earlier 
in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, 37 to 38. Then he said to his Talmudim, the disciples, the harvest is rich, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers to gather in his harvest. So the Son of Man, harvesting the earth, coming on a cloud, and judgment day, they're all wrapped up in a nice, neat package for us to see. But the timing, the timing for the Son of Man to do these things was not in the first century. It was also not during the lifetimes of the 12 disciples or of Jesus himself or even of the second generation of Jewish apostles like Paul. It would be at an unspecified future time, a time that is obviously even future to us. The 12 disciples, they had only the scantest of education and information from which to try to understand Yeshua's instructions and pronouncements. And yet, of what little they did know, they had faith in Him that could only have come from God. So they committed their lives to Christ and later traditions say that several went to their deaths on account of that commitment. We of the 21st century, we may not know everything about the future any more than they did, but we can know from the biblical record who Yeshua is in fine detail. We can know what it means for all who accept Him and all who don't. Well, let's move on to verse 34. Beginning with verse 34 on until the end of the chapter, there is such an important theme that often gets confused or is missed altogether. And so it establishes wrong expectations among believers. It is this. It is at the present age, meaning our present time, is not, it will not be a time of peace. There will be no utopian dream realized on earth, no matter how hard mankind or the church tries to establish one. Peace comes later, not now. It occurs when the millennial kingdom arrives. Now, the millennial kingdom is not a different kingdom from the kingdom of heaven. Rather, it is the final stage of development of the kingdom of heaven to its fullest, to its most complete, that it will ever be on this present earth. For Jesus to say that He brings a sword to inaugurate this kingdom of heaven on earth seems a little bit strange. A sword is symbolic of division. But he goes even further and he states unequivocally that bringing peace to the land, Eretz Israel, is what it means, is not his current mission. I imagine this was sweet news to Simon the Zealot and Judas the Sicarim. They both must have gleefully thought 
that Yeshua was implying that he was going to lead them in an armed uprising against the Romans. But his next words might have put a damper on their hopes. Because Christ says that the sword he brings is meant for a division within families. I mean, how are we to understand this? Is Jesus declaring war on households? See, in first century Jewish culture, the head of the household, usually the father or the grandfather, decided about the form of religious belief that the whole family would, would hold and practice. The issue for the Jews was not, of course, about which God to worship. Rather, it was about which master, which rabbi, so to speak, and which synagogue to follow as their religious authority. So while family division over religion no doubt must have happened occasionally, it, it really wasn't much of a problem uh, in Jewish society then. Thus, Yeshua has once again startled His twelve with His words. He claims that His presence inaugurates a, a new dynamic. A household will no longer practice its faith faith based on the choice of the head. In fact, different members of the household will choose differently on account of Christ. Even more, Yeshua demands that each member must choose Him on their own. No one can choose for them. It doesn't matter what parents or siblings might think. See, I don't think an average Gentile Christian today can even imagine the enormity of what Jesus is proposing. But ask a Jew who has accepted Christ what that meant for them. And many will tell you stories of the high cost that accompanied it. Yeshua's words are emotionally charged, to be sure. They are also structured for maximum effect. The words are in no way an attack on family. The jaw-dropping bottom line is that each family member is not only responsible to God for his or her own choice, but that allegiance to Yeshua may well bring chaos to a formerly cohesive family unit. From here forward, Yeshua declares, no Jewish son can say, but I'm not responsible for whom I place my faith in. My father decides. No Jewish daughter can say, I want to choose Yeshua, but my mother told me I can't. So she bears the responsibility, not me. And to emphasize his point, Messiah continues in verse 37 by saying that the highest allegiance of every family member must be to Him, not to the head of the household. In fact, if a first person makes allegiance to the head of the household or to the parents, the top priority above Christ, then they're just not worthy of Him. I want to say this more plainly. Such a decision to place anyone or anything above Yeshua disqualifies that person as his disciple. 
Now, those of us that are two millennia removed from when the twelve disciples heard this severe instruction, think of it, I don't know, kind of an abstract, spiritualized way that, that may or may not have some tangible effect on our lives. But the twelve and their families, and those Jews and their families that heard the good news, huh, they took it in a physical, tangible way. They would have to practice it and live it out, and almost certainly much family strife would erupt. Well, Yeshua is clearly drawing upon Micah chapter 7, which was associated with the end times and judgment day, even among the common Jews of Christ's day. They knew about this. Micah 7, 5, and 6. Don't trust in your neighbor. Don't put confidence in a close friend. Shut the gates of your mouth, even from your wife lying there with you in bed. For a son insults his father. A daughter rises against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies are the members of his own household. See, little brings long-term heartbreak to any person than marital splits and family strife. In the era when it was the norm that three, even four generations of a family would live in the same household, household the pain of family conflict, oh, that was so much more severe. So Jesus' message is not a welcome prediction. <clears throat> it says, before the messianic age of peace, finally arrives, everyone's going to pass through some type of affliction. And all the more so when one decides to follow Him. Even so, Christ makes it clear that following Him is more important than marital or family harmony. Now, the message of the next two verses, 38 and 39, is the requirement of self-denial. To the point of death in order to follow Christ. Now, while perhaps some red lights might go off in us because of Matthew putting the mention of the cross in the complete Jewish Bible, it says execution stake, but putting this mention of the cross into Christ's mouth this early in his ministry, the reality is crucifixion in his time was a nearly daily event. Because Romans were exempt from crucifixion, it was applied almost exclusively to Jews, thousands of them in the Holy Land, only Jews. Crucifixions were very public. They were always done on hilltops or along the most traveled roadways so the most people would see them. It was intended to act as a deterrent against disobeying the laws of Rome or inciting rebellion. <clears throat> there is no getting around a hint at martyrdom. Yet I think this really has more to do with an all-in type of commitment to Christ. And therefore, is, it is much less about our death than it is about prioritizing our lives around an unequivocal trust in Him. That is, the use of the word cross 
in his statement, it's not about an expectation of dying for the cause. Rather, it is symbolic of a complete alteration of our lives to reflect our newfound faith. Now, verses 40 through 42 provide me an opportunity to explain my regular use of calling Jesus an agent of God, which I know from emails bothers some of you. Notice how Christ uses a few different examples of the concept of agency in his instructions. He begins by saying that as the twelve disciples go along their missionary journeys, those who offer them hospitality are doing it as though they're offering it to him. But he also reveals that he himself was sent on behalf of someone higher than himself. The implication from his earlier words is of his close personal relationship with the Father. So clearly he is stating that when he is received, it is though that person is receiving the Father. Next, Christ uses the example of one who receives a prophet as obtaining the same reward as a prophet receives. And anyone receiving a sadek, a holy man, will receive the same reward the holy man gets. And finally, if one of Yeshua's disciples cares for a little one, a child, then his reward will not be lost. All of these illustrations are based on the concept of agency. A representative, an agent, is to be treated as the one whom he represents. An agent is the extension of the power and the authority of the one who sent him. Now, the agent is not the same as the one who sent him, but he wields the legal authority within some preset boundaries of the one who sent him. So it's within that understanding we must view one of the most debated <laughs> sayings attributed to Christ from John 14:9. Yeshua replied to him, Have I been with you so long without your knowing me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This appears in no other gospel, by the way, than John's. Now, sadly, with disregard for context, it is commonly said in Christianity that the meaning of this is that Jesus is essentially and mysteriously a sort of spiritual clone of the Father, or he has become the replacement of the Father for a new age. Therefore, in a diagram of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all illustrated as co-equals because they are essentially all the same. And I say in the strongest possible way, this is not biblical. Huh. It's not true. This mindset, that's all this is, this mindset was created as a doctrine sometime in the late 2nd century or later because I can find no evidence 
of it existing before then, in order for the Gentile-controlled church to separate themselves as far as possible from Jews and from Jehovah, God the Father, who they saw as the God of the Jews. It was designed to declare that Jesus Christ is the new God for New Testament Christians. Yet Christ is not claiming in John 14.9 to be the Father, but rather He is once again pointing to the concept of agency. He is the Father's agent. He has been given divine authority to exert and extend God the Father's power to earth and to its creatures on His behalf. So with that understanding, then the final three verses of Matthew 10 now have their intended context. See, we see how Christ now turns around and makes agents of the twelve disciples to wield the same power, but certainly not to hold the same position or same status that He was given by the Father. But Jesus Himself is also an agent of the Father. See, this expresses a well-known and accepted principle within first century and later Judaism called Shalya. Shalya. A Shalya is an emissary, an agent. A Shalya is legally empowered to act on behalf of the one he's representing. The Greek word apostolos, which became apostle in English, embodies the same idea because the concept of agency was nearly universal in the world's many first century cultures. It still is. Now, earlier in chapter 10, verses 1 and 8 specifically have Yeshua granting the powers of healing, exercising demons, cleansing the unclean, even resurrecting the dead to the twelve. But I doubt any Christian theologian would suggest that this makes the twelve disciples twelve mini-me's. The twelve disciples have not become twelve Yeshuas just because they have been granted the power to do the things He did, but they are His twelve agents. The ICC commentary on this section of Matthew 10 offers this, Behind the ever-changing preachers of the Gospel, there stands the Son of God Himself, and behind Him, God the Father. Let's move on to Matthew chapter 11. Won't get too far into it, but we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, which starts on page 1236. Twelve thirty-six. After Yeshua had finished instructing the twelve Talmudim, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns nearby. Now, meanwhile, Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, who had been put in prison, heard what the Messiah had been doing, so he sent a messenger to him through his Talmudim, his disciples, asking, 
Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for someone else? And Yeshua answered, Go and tell Yochanan what you are hearing and seeing. The blind are seeing again, the lame are walking, people with tzarat are being cleansed, skin disease. The deaf are hearing and the dead are being raised. The good news is being told to the poor and how blessed is anyone not offended by me. And as they were leaving, Yeshua began speaking about Yochanan to the crowds. What did you go out to the desert to see? Reeds swaying in the breeze? No. Then what did you go out to see? Someone who was well-dressed. Well-dressed people live in king's palaces. No. So why did you go out? To see a prophet. Yes. And I tell you, he's much more than a prophet. This is the one about whom the Tanakh says, See, I am sending out my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Yes, I tell you that among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than Yochanan the Immerser. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the time of Yochanan the Immerser until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. Yes, violent ones are trying to snatch it away. For all the prophets in the Torah prophesied until Yochanan. Indeed, if you are willing to accept, he is Elijah, whose coming was predicted. Now, if you have ears, then hear. And oh, what can I compare this generation with? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. Well, we make happy music. Why won't you dance? We made sad music, but you wouldn't cry. For, no, for Yochanan, John came fasting, not drinking. So they say, he has a demon. Now the Son of Man came, eating freely, drinking wine. So they say, aha, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, the proof of wisdom is in the actions it produces. Then Yeshua began to denounce the towns in which he had done most of his miracles because the people had not turned from their sins to God. Oh, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. Why, if the miracles done in you had been done in Zor and Sidon, they would have long ago put on sackcloth and ashes as evidence that they had changed their ways. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Zor and Sidon than for you on the Day of Judgment. And you, Capernaum, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Sheol. For if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom, it would still be in existence today. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom than for you. It was at that time that Yeshua said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you concealed these things from the sophisticated and educated and revealed them to ordinary folks. Yes, Father, I thank you that it pleased you to do this. My Father has handed over everything to me. Indeed, no one fully knows the Son except the Father, and no one fully knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son wishes to reveal Him. Come to me, 
all of you who are struggling and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The first 19 verses of chapter 11 revolve around John the Baptist. We find three subsections that each begin with a question. The first begins in verse 2. And the question is, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? The second question begins in verse 7. What did you go out to the desert to see? Reed swaying in the breeze? And the third question comes from uh, verse 16. Oh, what can I compare this generation with? See, the first verse has Yeshua going his separate way from the disciples. He was done teaching them for now. I can only imagine that their heads were swimming, trying to absorb not just what they heard, but also to comprehend what it meant. Now, although the complete Jewish Bible has it that Yeshua went on to preach in towns nearby, what it literally says is he went on to preach in their towns. And since the subject is the twelve disciples, this must mean that Christ not only remained in Galilee, but he literally visited the hometowns where the twelve disciples' families would have resided. Now, why did Yeshua just suddenly disengage from the twelve? I don't think it's mysterious. I see the early church father Chrysostom as getting it right. In his homily on the Gospel of Matthew, he says this, after Jesus commissioned the apostles, he proceeded to separate himself from them, to give them room and opportunity to do what he called them to do. For while he was present with them and healing others, no one would be inclined to approach them. You know, any good leader understands that after he has trained up a person, a disciple will call him. If he wants that person to grow and mature, he's got to kick him out of the nest. Got to let him, let him or her stand on their own. The reality is that whenever the leader is present, especially one as charismatic and widely known as Yeshua, along with the individual he's trained up, people will naturally bypass the initiate and gravitate to the leader. That's not good for the development of that person. And in the longer run, it inhibits the spreading of a movement or an organization. As the twelve disciples were now deep into their own missionary work, having been sent out in pairs, and as Yeshua was intentionally going it alone for the moment, as he visited towns in the Galilee region, John the Baptist suddenly re-enters the sea. However, John is not present because he's in prison. Now, Matthew does not give us the reason 
at this point. According to Josephus and his notable work Antiquities, John the Baptist was being held at Herod Antipas's hilltop for- fortress at Machiris. This is not located in modern-day Israel, but rather it's in Jordanian territory, about 15 miles on the east side of the Jordan River. According to Josephus, it was there that John the Baptist was finally executed. Mark 6 and Matthew 14 both deal with the execution, and they say that it was as a result of a vengeful act of Antipas's wife, Herodias. Because John, out of some unknown motivation, decided to publicly condemn their marriage. He was beheaded. However, Josephus says Antipas' real motivation was political. He feared John and his flock would incite Jews against him. I go with that. It makes far more sense because kings were always on the lookout for people with a following who could foment a threat to the throne. Well, John instinctively knew he was never going to leave that jail alive. And as he languished there, realizing that his days were numbered, pondering about who he was and what his life's legacy might be, he became troubled. So he sent two of his own disciples to find Yeshua in order to give him a message. The message is one that has vexed and even dismayed many believers, including Bible scholars, for centuries. The message the two disciples are to present to Christ and then come back to John with a response, hopefully before he's executed, is in the form of a question. Are you the one that's to come, or are we to look for another? Such a question could only come from the agony of doubt. The fallout of that question is what we're going to discuss next time.